0: Hello, Agents, and welcome back to the second part of our Season 2 premiere. This is for the episode 201, Time Will Tell. We left off having just met the female H.G. Wells, played by the unforgettable Jamie Murray, and so we are going to pick up with our discussion of her amazing character.
1: And bringing it back to the show, I have some more information I'd like to share. H.G. is in the middle of giving some exposition about herself and her involvement with the warehouse to Pete and Micah, and she says that she brought the Teslas to the warehouse because she was apprenticed as an agent at Warehouse 12. She says she met Nikola Tesla at the Chicago World's Fair of 1893, also known as the Columbian Exhibition. Now, this intersects quite nicely with Miranda's timeline, but she does not study Americans as much. Yes, very little, in
0: fact. (laughs) I don't know how much you are aware of the Columbian Exhibition, but I have things to say about it. I know a ton about the Paris World's Fair and nothing about Chicago, so let's go. Okay, so everyone important who was alive
1: in the world was at the Chicago World's Fair of 1893. I will point to a podcast that I have referenced in the past, both in the show and in show notes, called The History Chicks, and they literally do not have a running list of everyone that has been involved of the subjects that they've covered from the Chicago World's Fair because they didn't realize it would be such a big thing when they started, but almost every person they've ever covered was either there, was either heavily involved in the creation of the exhibition itself, or an exhibition within the exhibition, or had a life-changing moment revolving around the Columbian exhibition. It is incredibly important, not to just American history, but to history itself. First, I will start with some notable people at the Chicago World's Fair that I think we should all be aware of, and then I will talk about its relevance to Warehouse 13. At age, I believe, 13, Helen Keller and her teacher, supporter, best friend, Anne Sullivan, were in attendance. Alexander Graham Bell was there. Pierre de Coubertin, the founder of the Modern Olympics, who has a very French last name that I can't pronounce, hmm. was there. Frederick Douglass and Ida B. Wells were there. Oh, yes. George Washington Carver was there. Jane Adams played a major role in the Columbian Exhibition. And because we are an intersectional feminist podcast, someone I think we should very much celebrate who was there, in addition to, of course, George Washington Carver, Frederick Douglass, and Ida B. Wells. A woman named Elizabeth Keckley was there. She was a person born into slavery, who became a free woman, seamstress, best friend, and confidant of Mary Todd Lincoln, and an author in her own right. And she wrote a book in 1868, so she was already an author by the time she was in attendance at the Chicago World's Fair. And I would like to say the name of her book... Because it makes me really emotional, and I cried a little bit when I read about it. Elizabeth Keckley wrote the book Behind the Scenes, colon, or 30 Years a Slave and Four Years in the White House. Oh, wow. It is amazing. There was also a Hawaiian exhibition there that I do believe Princess Liliuokalani Kalani, uh, or Queen Liliuokalani of Hawaii, helped set up, and it was very beautiful. It was because this is such an important event for history, especially the history of women, and there was actually a women's exhibition within the larger exhibition. I think that as an intersectional feminist podcast, we had a duty to highlight some of those voices. But also, it makes it extraordinarily believable that HG Wells, especially as a woman, would have been there at that time. It's I also don't know specifically about Nikola Tesla's involvement at the Chicago World's Fair, but I do know that electricity itself was an attraction at the World's Fair. So there's a big possibility that he was there or was in direct conflict with someone who was there instead. Um, so the fact that they threw
0: that out there was the perfect warehousey thing. That's so awesome. I I am thrilled to hear it. I had a much less good association, which is that a lot of world's exhibitions kind of like objectified indigenous people and like the references to War of the Worlds. That's like a text that actually HG Wells was inspired by the colonization and destruction of Tasmania in Australia and how like when a foreign invader comes in, this is why science fiction invader narratives are often a metaphor for British or other European colonialism. So that stuff is probably several decades earlier, though. And the idea that things were getting more modern and like that a Hawaiian queen was there like representing herself instead of being you know, represented by others. Yeah, I mean, I don't know
1: if she was there specifically, I couldn't find that, but I do know that she was involved in the creation of the Hawaiian exhibition. And while I am, first of all, nowhere near an expert in the same way that Miranda is on these subjects, and while I definitely don't believe that any of these exhibitions were free of fetishizing or eroticizing the other, Mm -hmm. I will say that a lot of the subcultural groups, there were different religious expositions and different cultural exhibitions. But by and large, from what I understand about the Chicago World's Fair, what made it different is that these groups advocated on their own behalf and put themselves there rather than being taken there by an outside force.
0: Right. And yeah, the, the 1890s, like the turn of the 20th century, people are getting more modern and socially aware. And like we said with H.G. Wells, he was like very much about political reform and uh, pacifism. So all of this is incredible and exciting. And it brings us back to the scene with female H.G. Wells. And she's got a gun or a Tesla to Pete. And she says something like, you know, you're rummaging through
1: my home. I would like to know why you're ransacking through my home. Yes. (laughs)
0: And Micah says, oh, that has a distinctive ringtone to it, which obviously someone who was bronzed before cell phones would probably not know what that means. And, you know, I was trying to, like, overread, like, what Micah thought Pete would get out of this. But all that matters is that Pete recognizes that Micah is going to create a distraction. Like, I don't think... I used to think, like, that the ringtone, like, he she knows that it's going to be C is for cookie and the cookie is somehow a clue. I don't think that's it. I think it's just, like, Pete is like, oh, I see, I see. And Micah in her pocket calls Pete, who is probably, like, her number one on speed dial, you know, like, pushes one button, calls him up. And the Cookie Monster song starts to ring, which is
1: so funny. And H.G. Wells' face is a question mark.
0: <laughs> like a very good question.
1: It's like where, like, you can tell this is a person who's read, like, some stuff, obviously knows what radio is, but is just fully and completely unaware of where the sound is coming from, and it's
0: amazing. Well, and also, like, the Cookie Monster kid voice is quite weird, like, it's it's almost better that it's Cookie Monster because like music or something would be more recognizable than like a children's song with a wacky voice is like she doesn't know what this is there's just no
1: frame of reference whatsoever for what HG Wells is experiencing which I think is hilarious
0: yes so as uh this ringtone distracts HG Wells pete takes the opportunity to turn on her and they get into a scuffle and he says i'd hate to have to hit a sweet old victorian lady but micah pow pow pulls out her gun and says i have no problem shooting one and i just wrote micah is having a very bad and confusing day it's very (laughs) bad and confusing and it's also you know this is what I saw in Eddie McClintock's face when he says the thing about a sweet old Victorian lady. He was just making out with her. And I think he's like, her mouth is so old. Like, isn't that <laughs> what Pete is thinking? Like, oh my gosh, I just made out with a, like, 200-year-old lady. Obviously, she's not. Like, she was bronzed and... I think he just felt betrayed.
1: I, oh, I poor just, Pete. He's He goes all in on everything. And I just I just feel like he was like, oh,
0: he thought he had a chance. He was like, I haven't I haven't dated anyone. This lady actually likes me. Like, no, she doesn't. And it's
1: the same. It would be the same if it was Micah. It would be the same if it was you Mm -hmm. or me. It's a very human reaction of, oh, wow, I thought someone actually liked me. And then they don't. That's always hurtful. And you're always going to want to lash out a little bit at someone who
0: pulls the rug out from under you in that way. And it is interesting because we have Micah as such a great example of a woman who is very skilled in hand to hand combat, and obviously, if H. G. Wells was apprenticed at Warehouse Twelve, like she's got some skills, and she is a perfectly um, like equal foe to Pete, even without the weapon. You know, like they're like he is going easy on her because she's an attractive lady, and he's about to, uh, she's about to get the best of him, and Micah is the one who's like, oh, I've got no problem with hitting a lady or, or holding a gun to another woman, so it's all really cool. And I also noted that in this scuffle, you see the very first shot of Jamie Murray's amazing wardrobe. She has, throughout the series, these back lace-up jackets that are sort of like an homage to corsetry but like they're not actual corsets it's like the perfect level and they were super in at the time too oh yeah I had one I still have one um if you want a good place to buy a lace-up jacket on the back I recommend goodgoth.com Ah, that's where I bought mine (laughs) very nice and they're amazing and it's it's just like this character is so perfect later they
1: tie up H G. to a chair, and Pete remarks, and this is why I got nitpicky with Miranda earlier, I thought English people were supposed to be polite, polite, and if H. G. Well's face was a question mark before, now it's twelve question marks. She just looks at it like, "I don't know where you got that idea. <laughs> it's super funny. so um, but h G. does say something mostly directed at Micah. She says, "All men turn on you eventually." calls men neanderthals and micah notices because she also referred to men as neanderthals earlier and they have a
0: moment and i wonder if possibly um you know helena overheard micah's comment i don't know i don't, if it's I don't think it's possible.
1: possible i think that they just have a connection
0: yeah they they feel the same way and you know if micah knows as much about the 19th century as she does like She already said that she's kind of sympathetic to the possibility that H.G. Wells was just too radical for his slash now her time period.
1: Um, And Pete is commenting on the situation. And he says, for someone who's been unconscious for years, you've held on to some anger. And she does the big reveal, which is not
0: unconscious, just immobile, which is terrifying that is absolutely torturous if you think about it like the idea that you are some somehow just in your own head but unable to move or like enjoy life sounds awful a true a
1: true nightmare uh there's something similar in fringe when characters are trapped in amber and it is among the most terrifying things i can imagine
0: yes So, on the topic of H.G. Wells possibly being too politically active and different for his time, I'm going to introduce our artifact expert for today. Today's artifact expert is also named Miranda, but not to be confused with myself. Miranda Steege has a BFA in drama from Carnegie Mellon and is currently a PhD candidate in English at the University of California, Riverside. Her specialties include Victorian literature, LGBT studies, and fan culture. Stege describes her experimental dissertation, Mystery Dissertation Project, as part scholarly work, part mystery novel, part fan fiction, full queer. Her work in progress can be found on her blog, which we will link to in our show notes. So the reason that I brought Miranda Steej on for this is that she is an expert in fan culture and LGBT fan culture that include studies of the gender bend or gender swap. So here I would like to insert a clip about um, where she talks about gender bending in casting. In terms
2: of gender bending in casting, like if we're talking TV shows or, or movies, things like that. I, I think that it is really closely related to the sort of reboot culture that we have right now. And I think it's one of the potentially really positive things about the fact that a lot of the stories that we tell are remakes or sort of adaptations or retellings of stories from history or earlier generations where I think one of the questions a lot of people are asking who are doing these remakes is how do we take these earlier stories and make them more accessible to today um, to sort of put more kinds of of people into those stories. Um, So thinking about, you know, not just like cross-gender casting, but also thinking about like cross-racial casting or, you know, characters who aren't explicitly queer in some things or becoming explicitly queer so whether that's like the Charmed reboot where the sisters are Latina or this where we have the female H.G. Wells or even like there's finally a female doctor in Doctor Who or the female Ghostbusters um, even you know even Ray from Star Wars and Finn and Poe where you have uh, a much more sort of diverse group of of people who are that main core trio in the in the in the Star Wars movies. So I think I think maybe that's why we're seeing so much of the sort of gender bending and, and respending and things in casting, like that it has to has to do sort of with this with this reboot culture. Uh, I think I think other things that often happen. You know, I I would say probably even particularly in in sick, which which tends to really not always, but but often really sort of dig into these questions of, you know, how gender and sexuality impact our lives, there's a real opportunity for fic writers and fic readers to question and critique gender norms and ideas about gender through fan fiction that's specifically sort of playing with gender in some way. It allows to think about how much of a person's sort of sexual identity or desire has to do with the gender of their, you know, the person they're interested in, how much of a person's personality is tied to gender, whether that's sort of, you know, sociocultural or... So there's, there's, there's lots of ways in which I think, even when it's just like PWP, like, Important without plot, um, fic that's involving some sort of gender play, can like be really making a sort of thoughtful sort of critique or asking thoughtful questions about things like gender and sex and the body.
0: So of course, this kind of inclusion is super important in a million ways for audiences. But I did ask Steege if she had some legitimate criticisms of gender-bent casting, and a large part of this goes to fan fiction in particular. Um, beyond just canonical film and television casting. And the first thing that Stige, uh wanted us to know was that we are not giving credence to the people who say, oh, you ruined my childhood by making female Ghostbusters. Um, she's about to offer us a much more nuanced and LGBT studies, um, queer cultural critique of what some of these uh, processes are doing.
2: The, the really sort of thoughtful, legitimate critiques um, do often come from the world of fan fiction where gender play, gender bending, gender swap, rule 63, they're all sort of uh, various sort of related terms, has historically sort of meant something a little bit different. So, So there are a number of kinds of sex that can be covered by the sort of category of gender play. One is like, you have a character who's of a particular gender, and, and usually they're cis, and through magic they're changed into the, you know, quote-unquote, other or opposite gender, still cis, right? Meaning that, like, their gender's being changed by their bodies being magically changed in some way or the sort of like quote-unquote always a woman where you have like what a Sherlock Holmes was always a woman but again it, it you know meaning like always a, a cis woman and so some of the criticisms of this kind of gender swap and stick come from the fact that it is this very cis-centric way of thinking about gender um, where your sort of bodily anatomy determines whether you're a man or a woman and that it's often the sort of exploration of this identity through sort of trans experiences. Um, there's a really interesting chapter. There's a book called Framing Fan Fiction by Christina Busey, and she has a chapter in it with Alexis Lothian, Lothian and they talk about they talk about this. Um, you know, this particular critique of sort of that more traditional sort of gender swap version in fic, but they also talk about fics that approach gender play in a much more sort of genderqueer or, you know, trans kind of way, where you have, what if, what if Sherlock Holmes is a trans man, trans man, you know, what if he was assigned female at birth, and what would his experience be as a, you know, as a trans man in Victorian London, for example, or you have think about, like, nymphadora Tonks from Harry Potter, who has this special magic power where she can, like, change her hair color and change what her face looks like and you know a lot of fans have been like well wouldn't that like really destabilize her relationship to gender and so a lot of fans write talks as you know non-binary or queer. so there's a lot of fic too that that um, deals with gender play in that in that particular way where it's not sort of just about like what if we swap a cis man versus woman but like what what if we're sort of Thinking about you know the daily lived experience of trans people, or what if we're trying to really radically destabilize the concept of gender, detach it from the body? Um, so I think it sort of runs the spectrum in terms of the politics and kinds of things we might mean when we talk about sort of gender play in in sick. I think another critique that can sort of be offered of the way that both in, in fan fiction and, and in in canon that sort of gender swap or gender play get sort of done or talked about is that there can be sometimes a sort of tendency to detach like gender from other sort of identity categories. So um to be like really happy which is fine of course, that like, oh there's a female doctor, there's a female Jedi, but not to sort of take into account the fact that often, not not always, but often these gender this gender play or gender bending casting race remains the same. So there have not been any doctors of color in Doctor Who, right? So it's great that we have a female doctor, but we should also be thinking about sort of racial politics in connection to gender politics and the way that that sort of impacts how we read those stories and in, in fan fiction too. There's there's like Rukmini Pandey is is this amazing um, fan scholar who wrote Squee from the Margins, and, and one of her sort of main points in that book is that fans and fan scholars tend to focus on gender and sexuality as this sort of really central important category that's being sort of worked out through fan fiction, but it, you sort of ignore race for the most part, or sort of footnote it, she says. And so we get a ton of fics that are thinking really critically about gender and sex, but often. Still remain sort of really white and uncritical of the relationship between sort of canon and thick in terms of race.
1: I like, in terms of what she was talking about, in terms of cis identity and in terms of heteronormative identity, that H.G. Wells isn't necessarily at least hetero. And I think you can make an argument that she's not fully cis performing for her time anyway. I think the idea of gender was weirdly a little bit more fluid in the Victorian era. I mean, obviously there's like the angel of the household and like some very strict roles there, but I think the lack of understanding of uh, sexuality led to a similar lack of understanding about gender. So there was just more ambiguity and fluidity to play with. Does that make sense?
0: Well, it does. And I mean, as a scholar of Victorian studies and LGBT history, it's absolutely the case to say that people who we now might identify as trans or gender fluid or gender queer absolutely existed in the Victorian period, but didn't have our language at that time. So it's absolutely possible that when we have these women writers, so like George Eliot is a great example of a woman who wrote under a male name, but also kind of identified herself in a male way but she did have a male partner so her sexual orientation wasn't the queer thing about her but her actual performance of identity was kind of queer in my opinion again like it it's just that we have to historicize and be like well Gender fluid wasn't a term. Trans wasn't a term. So, And it's not as clear cut for
1: everybody either. I yeah. mean, in any time period, there's going to be the sapphos who are yeah. like, I like women, and I know I like women, and this is what's going to happen. Uh, but then there are people all over that spectrum who are like, I may like women, I may like both, I may have a side to me that's open to both things, I may feel more masculine sometimes, I may, I may feel more feminine other times, and I think that's all very part of it. And I think that's what makes part of this gender bend so alluring is that, yes, H.G. Wells in this world is flipped and is a woman, but also has some very masculine and non-heteronormative qualities about her that make the gender bend less predictable.
0: Yes. And when we see her throughout the series, She does dress often in a masculine way, which I just love. We talked about Outlander earlier, and it's like, when you have these historical women in, like, the... Not retrofuturism, uh, sort of the opposite of that. The speculative idea of, like, what a Victorian woman would have worn if she could wear trousers, like, is really cool. And um, it's also complicated as well, because, like women could be novelists in especially like by the 1940s, you know, we have Agatha Christie and everybody, but uh, you know, in the 1810s we have Jane Austen, but it's actually more about genre, which is what we're about to get to in this scene, which it, it wasn't that women couldn't write novels. Lots of women wrote novels and openly published under their names, but it's the sort of novel that HG Wells was writing, which was, termed as masculine because it was a science novel like
1: we think of it now as science fiction sorry to step on your no understanding. you're right but it's like we think of now we think now of science fiction it's like okay they're using science to tell a fictional story but back then so much science was so new that it just was fiction and so it made sense that it would be a part of it. And it was about new things that smart people were inventing and smart people were doing and what might come next.
0: And what would a woman know
1: about any of that?
0: You know, yeah, a, wo- a woman couldn't be trained in medicine or science or biology, you know, like these things that H.G. Wells was uh, writing about. So yes, I I think all of this is really important when we think about gender and we think about this time period. And then as Micah is sort of starting to sympathize with this, because she knows all of that, and I don't think I said this note yet, but my note is that these two actors, uh, Joanne and Jamie, have this like eye contact where you see these conversations happening, where Micah is sympathetic um, when Wells says men are Neanderthals, and Micah does seem to actually trust as they go through this, like, okay, um, HG Wells is in handcuffs and Pete is like, you know, you, you gotta reveal what you're looking for. And she seems, H.G. Wells seems to like give in and be like, okay, I'll do it. And obviously we should be suspicious of her so quickly starting to give in to these agents' commands. But Micah seems to be like, oh yeah, I got through to her. Oh yeah, we're on the same page. Sorry, I just, while
1: we're in this queer space, I wanted to make a note here. Because I have a lot of queer friends who watch the show, and I have a lot of straight friends and family who watch this show. And a lot of the straight members of my family are like, I don't understand why people ship HG and Micah together and I think this is the perfect moment to bring up why I think it's very legible to queer communities Mm -hmm. and not quite as legible to non-queer communities and why they both seem very confused that the other doesn't see their point of view. (laughs) Um, This is something Miranda and I talked about personally at different points in our lives about how questioning your sexuality or any aspect like that about your identity, lead you to think about your relationships to people of other genders and sexualities. And a lot of times for queer people, there is a, a confusion as to whether or not you want to be around someone, you want to be like someone, or you want to be intimate with someone. And I think that this moment with them both calling men Neanderthals, both discovering that they share a love of puzzles, both feeling superior and yet suppressed by men in some ways, plays to that confusion and forms that deep admiration and that deep bond that a lot of questioning people identify with, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, and it it also makes sense, as we said, Micah loves literature and this is like an idol person to her. So she's she's looking at this historical figure and being blown away and like not attracted romantically, but like attracted to learn more about this, this idol of hers. And then again, that can be confusing. Maybe Micah's not thinking it right now, but if at some future point you're thinking about your sexuality, you think, Oh, well, when I was so drawn to her, was it because she was a famous author or was it because I'm attracted, like, and if I had this
1: connection to her, what, did that connection actually mean to me was I feeling it this way because I admire her or because I admire her romantically do I want to spend time with her or do I want to spend time on a date with her it's more nebulous and I think that like my mom loves the show and my mom's super straight and it's just like I I don't see I mean I support whatever because my mom is very friendly to everything but like she's like I support whatever but I just don't see how it's romantic. And I'm like, I see how you don't see it, but I also totally see how other people see it, if that makes sense.
0: Oh, it definitely makes sense. And I think if you're ready, this leads us to the puzzle. So Micah, I love that you mentioned, we know she loves puzzles, and obviously so does Helena slash HG. Micah finds a key guided by HG Wells that was hidden in a drawer. And then Um, H.G. Wells continues giving instructions for Pete and Micah to, and I'm going to quote it her way, open the blinds simultaneously, uh, which is just so perfect. (laughs) And the thing that I'm going to be a Victorianist about is that H.G. Wells wrote a very early science fiction story, um, like 1901, I think, the first men on the moon in which a physicist named Mr. Uh, Caver endeavors to build a spaceship and he, in the novel, is going to use sliding windows and blinds to steer the spaceship. Mr. Caver, you say? Oh, well, we're about to talk about Mr. Caver. Yeah, it's, it's definitely an intentional reference. <laughs> he built his spaceship in this way. The, the blinds Pete and Micah, you know, are using in that way. And it reveals a cool secret passage with a steampunk corset thing. And at the
1: time, Pete makes an excellent Young Frankenstein reference. It is good! It's so good. Neither of the ladies appreciate or understand it. Um, (laughs) But I I see you, Pete, and I I liked it.
0: (laughs) Yes. And so Helena's like, oh, it's just a family heirloom. (laughs) And then she very, like, she is so manipulative with the psychology, which, again, if you actually think about the real HG Wells at the turn of the 20th century, psychological reasoning becoming more well-known, like, thinking about how people work and what makes them do what you want them to do. Like, she basically convinces them to pull the switch by telling them not to pull the switch. And this is, like, amazing, because when they do the thing... Um, which they think like they're going to reveal what she didn't want them to find. She gets exactly what she wanted. A reverse gravity effect takes place and they get yanked up to the ceiling. Helena, however, remains unaffected. She says, oh, these things haven't changed much, referring to the handcuffs. What we can say is that a warehouse agent would probably be trained to escape from handcuffs. So she gets out and reveals that she has magnetic boots on and we will get to how that works in a minute. Um, But the conversation that takes place immediately is Pete and Micah kind of angrily speculating about why HG Wells was bronzed. Like, Oh, this is why they bronzed you. You're really dangerous. And she gets really upset. She says that centuries ago, it was easier to believe in the possibility of a time machine than in the reality that a woman thought one up. And this goes to what we were saying where it's not necessarily about women writers. It's about women scientists, which obviously our warehouse 13, Helena Wells was absolutely a scientist based on these, um, you know, contractions. She's already clearly demonstrated that she, created and designed and built and was like using and i
1: also like that the presence of micah seems to be throwing hg off because they're arguing and it's micah who out loud is like the wiring on the vest matches the wiring on the switchboard and hg's like they have nothing to do with each other playing real dumb very unconvincingly and micah sees right through her And I think it's very easy for H.G. Wells to hold a lot of resentment towards men um, for the treatment that we know about and from backstory that we'll learn later. But to see this very analytical, very smart woman makes it harder to hold on to that anger. It's like, well, that doesn't fit with the narrative of what I thought the world is.
0: Yes, and we will absolutely learn more about Helena in her role in Warehouse 12 But remember that her words were that she was apprenticed there and we get the idea that yeah her history with being seen as lesser even possibly by a progressive organization is just based in historical oppression of women. And Micah is clearly not that oppressed uh, although she does have issues with men like we all do. And she's clearly not apprenticed
1: either. She tells Pete what to do. She argues with him and it's It's confusing and disorienting for Helena in a really interesting way. And as they get sucked to the ceiling, we go
0: out on a shoop, shoop, shoop box. Yes. And the only other thing that we haven't mentioned yet is that her brother, Charles, was the writer. So again, this is a gender reversal. Like, well, men can do science. Women can, like, write romances. No, Charles wrote the romances. She was doing the science. And Helena says, uh... I supplied the ideas and research, he supplied the mustache.
1: And she has a really great line with a really great read. And like Micah, she is really good at the small moments that don't seem like they would be much on the page, but then read out loud, you're like, oh, wow, you brought a lot to it. Pete says, oh, this is probably why you bronzed her. You got these anger issues. And she says, just the same way that when micah gets put into a corner her analytical side comes out when hg is cornered her very victorian proper side comes out which i think mm-hmm. is interesting so instead of saying shut up you don't know when pete is saying she probably got bronze because of her anger she gets even angrier and says not to speculate upon things about which you know nothing which is just a very well formulated sentence
0: it's a very proper grammatical sentence, yeah.
1: Yeah, and it's said with such specificity and anger at him that you can tell he hit a nerve even if we don't know what that nerve is.
0: Yeah. Well, and you mentioned uh, before that we had talked about the references to the episode Claudia and the institutionalization of women in the 19th century, um, which was kind of at its the end of its era in the turn of the 20th century but like when people are accusing her of being angry and all we know is that she was locked up in a way that's even like worse than an institution she was bronzed like calling her you know sort of like a mad woman I think is a real nerve to strike and that's why she gets so upset
1: I 100% agree and then she walks out leaving pete and micah on the ceiling <clears throat> and <laughs> pete and micah have some banter and <laughs> and micah says something like so do all your dates uh, go this way and he says uh, i'd give this one a seven which i get because you know he got to make out there was some excitement it's still better than both of micah's attempts last season with mr hot emt who has twins, and then the world's most boring rich dude,
0: so. Yeah, I mean, definitely, he he got to kiss a pretty lady, so. I, I mean, like the seven as a, like, somewhat successful date. Literally, if any of
1: our listeners got to kiss Jamie Murray, regardless of <laughs> sexual orientation or gender, they would be at
0: 15s on the scale of 1 to 10. <laughs> yeah, we go to CERN where Joshua's casually carrying some antimatter, which is conveniently labeled in both English (laughs) and French, Um, which is, I mean, valid, because Switzerland has both English and French as... It has three languages, I think, as as their language. But his boss is trying to get this antimatter when Claudia and Artie walk in, and we see the boss and Joshua standing there with the antimatter, and claudia immediately you know is concerned for joshua and shouts up to him and this is when the quote-unquote boss points at artie and yells that he's a terrorist and obviously in this facility cern i mean they call it like an underground city it's very um important in the scientific community but also obviously has dangerous materials housed there so there's security people who go rushing to grab artie. And Claudia is luckily just getting to the stairs towards Joshua when this happens. So they don't quite grab her. Um, As Artie's getting taken into custody, he yells like, Claudia, look at his hand. He's got the thimble. And this is Harriet Tubman's thimble from the season finale. We remember discussing. So Claudia grabs the thimble from his hand just in time to reveal that McPherson is impersonating Joshua's boss. But in the chaos of all of this, McPherson pushes Joshua off the ledge and runs off with the antimatter. And shout out for continuity, because we see Joshua land very badly on that leg. And we do find out later that he broke his leg. And he lands on a pile of like metal pipes. Like, that's the worst. Like, it's an uneven surface. They're hard objects. Like, luckily, it's not even a full story. Otherwise, you'd yeah. be dead, but it's still rough. It's definitely a bad fall. And we're just left with him, you know, already being taken to custody, him being injured. McPherson runs off, and then we return to the H.G. Wells house.
1: Where they are still stuck on the ceiling, and Micah is having. What I can only describe as a volcanic overflow of emotions, (laughs) she's laughing, but in that sort of of I-don't-know-what-any-of-my-emotions-are way of, okay, well, cavorite is a metal that HG Wells wrote about that's an anti-gravity metal, but it's not real, because it's from a book. It's from a book from this author, I mean, that's a man. And so that's not a thing, but maybe it's a thing because the man is a woman and who knows what reality is. And Pete is remarkably unfazed. He's like, I just don't expect that I know anything anymore. So
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's so perfect because she's like laughing, like, that's not real. And again, this is the same book, uh, First Men on the Moon with Mr. Cavor who discovers this. Anti-gravity material named Cavorite after him. So they realize, like, yeah, we just met the female HG Wells. Caverite is probably real. And this is when Pete decides that he is just going to make the move and get them off the ceiling. He uses the Tesla and has a brilliant plan telling Micah, hold on or don't, because basically, The only way to to go is down and it is a high ceiling. So he successfully reverses the, uh, you know, jams the anti-gravity and reverses the effect and they smack down onto the floor. And this is good, but H.G. Wells has left. She has the imperceptor vest and we are about to learn a little more about it. Uh, Claudia is talking to... Artie about the H.G.L. situation, which there is not time to fill her in, about H.G.L.s both being a woman and out as a danger. First of all,
1: Artie grabs Claudia by the arm to a nearby computer and says, hack in, which (laughs) Claudia makes a really funny face and it's funny because you don't need to hack in because you're already inside. Like You don't need to... There's no hacking that needs to occur. She's right there. And says, do a search on HG's inventions, specifically ones not in the warehouse. And everyone starts talking at once. And Artie yells at them, guys, stop. Bigger fish. And they calm down. Pete's voice goes first and says, uh, hey, did you know when you're bronzed you can still think? And Artie's <laughs> like, yes, obviously. I know things. Then Pete says something like, Did you know her? Blah, 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 blah. And Claudia just
0: turns around and goes, her? (laughs) No, no time. No time to explain, yes. But what Claudia is able to access are sort of the schematics about the imperceptor vest, which would not have been operational in H.G. Wells' time because they didn't have the appropriate power source. But, um, you know, they say a small, extremely powerful source would make it work, And connection, connection, that would be the antimatter, which was just stolen. So this is when Artie puts together that it's a trap, and McPherson wanted them out of the warehouse because his plan was to get into the Escher vault. We did um, see, didn't we see it in the old lady episode? We saw
1: the famous painting of Escher stairs we did not I think we may have even heard there was an Escher vault but we have never seen it before and it is one of the coolest things I've ever seen which is essentially a 3d moving version of mc Escher's staircase photo which is called we talked about it before I think it's called gravity yes yeah like the other agents their stuff is stored essentially in a storage vault of rooms Okay, But bronzed agent stuff is stored in the Escher Vault and is incredibly
0: difficult to access. So again, it's all revolving around H.G. Wells, who we still don't know why she was bronzed. Meanwhile, we go to the warehouse where Mrs. Frederick confronts Lena. And she, she goes up to her and is like, do you remember where you were at the time of these things? Do you blah, blah, blah? And Lena clearly is having blackouts and issues and can't tell. And then Mrs. Frederick grabs Lena around the neck and starts to strangle her. After she looks into Lena's eyes and sees
1: them morph into McPherson's eyes.
0: Yes, okay, that's a really important thing. So we see the really cool effect of Mrs. Frederick identifying with her Mrs. Frederick magic that I think it's like McPherson's eyes photoshopped onto uh, what's her name Janelle Williams's face and that is Mrs. Frederick's cue to grab her and it's a scary showdown but on the one hand we we have to side with Mrs. Frederick because we know we know that Lena is the one who has, been framing Claudia for something she actually did but we also know you know there's the whole thimble there's McPherson something is going on and as soon as Lena loses consciousness her poor I mean her face her eyes she looks terrified but she passes out and Mrs. Frederick reaches under like her her neck and from her ear a little white pearl rolls out And um, this, speaking of, like, Victorians, all happens really fast. Then Mrs. Frederick immediately provides Lena with some smelling salts, which wake her up. And then Mrs. Frederick gives her something to drink. And you think, oh, it's going to be, like, a, you know, magic sci-fi potion. And it's absinthe, which is, like, a very Oscar Wilde thing to give somebody. I love that she just had it on her person. Oh, she is ageless, (laughs) Mrs. Frederick. (laughs) Truly. She has a flask of absinthe just and some smelling salts at the ready. Although I think also we get the idea because like the first entry of that scene, we think, oh no, like Mrs. Frederick might not know, but like Mrs. Frederick knows. And clearly she has been suspicious for a long time. And she has even been suspicious of the particular artifact in play because she knows how to remove this. And she tells Lena that she's really sorry. The only way to remove the pearl is when Lena's like, you strangled me. Um, It's called the Pearl of Wisdom, and it allows someone to control someone else's thoughts and movements. And now they finally released it.
1: And Mrs. Frederick goes on to force Lena to confront her real memories and realized that this all started like a few months ago so it's not like the entire time we've known lena she's been off it's mm-hmm. just been for a little bit of time which i think we having seen the show several times it didn't affect us that much but i definitely remember watching for the first time and thinking wait has this person been a wolf in sheep's clothing the whole time yeah you know? i mean
0: definitely it felt that way
1: so it was it was a nice relief to know that it wasn't the entire time we've known this character because now we have no information about this character because everything was a lie. So it's, it's the things we know about Lena are still true and now we see that she is a victim of McPherson's machinations. And this is the note that I paused earlier um, mm-hmm. and wanted to come back to when we got to this point. I feel that this, first of all, further adds to the level of mcpherson's evil nature because uh, we talked in the season one finale about how difficult and villainous it was for mcpherson to use the artifact created from the intense emotions of an enslaved black woman striving for freedom to then use another black woman and then he combined that with another artifact to essentially enslave her he Mm -hmm. used an artifact from an enslaved woman fighting for freedom to enslave another black woman and that's awful and the glimpses that we get into lena's altered memories of the event and then later lena's real memory of the event where she realizes it was her who did the things this show is really not shy as we've talked about in terms of addressing mental health issues and really deep traumatic issues like alcoholism I have to say as someone who deals with PTSD that this is I think a very accurate and thoughtful for portrayal of what PTSD is like there there are two ways that people at least in my experience have tended to talk about flashbacks and memories related to trauma. And some of the time people describe it as watching themselves in a movie from like afar, which is sort of how Lena experiences it. In the beginning of the episode, when things aren't that clear, it seems sort of distant. Um, And the other is the way that it's so intense, it feels like you aren't watching it, you are actually living in it in the moment which I think is one of the ways that is more commonly represented in media. But I think it's important to know that there are those both two kinds and both are really damaging because it messes with your perception um, and both can make you lose time. And they say that's what happens to Lena is sometimes she'd wake up in a different place. Uh, Sometimes it would just be a few seconds. And we've talked a lot about how pete dealing with his alcoholism has reached out to a lot of viewers and i think that if anyone is struggling with ptsd this doesn't make you crazy or a villain and i think this episode goes a long way to show that these are things that are happening to you not because something is wrong with you but because something or someone did something to you these are a reaction to events And that's true in Lena's case. It's because someone used her and did these things to her. Um, And so I just wanted to point that out because I thought it was a really thoughtful and intense portrayal of something that isn't often shown in such a nuanced way.
0: Yes. And I had written the exact, not about PTSD, but the exact same thing about how awful and villainous it is that... McPherson used the Black woman's artifact against another Black woman. Um, And we talked with our artifact expert, um, Dr. Whitehead, in the end um, of last season about Harriet Tubman and about the representation of Black women. But the, I think, really awesome counterpoint to McPherson's villainy is that these two women, with their amazing, like flying colors of the Bechdel test and the fact that they're both black women and the fact that they're both powerful and like, obviously Lena was victimized. But as soon as Mrs. Frederick, another black woman is able to free her from her enslaved experience of being like a puppet for a white man, Lena is able to like recognize her own self and her ability to defeat the structure that oppressed her in this way that like Lena by piecing together her memories can help Mrs. Frederick and Pete and Micah to capture McPherson and stop this horrible thing that he's doing. So like, it's so cool. Just the fact that they're both women um, having this discussion, but I think the show really shined in having them work together on this. I totally agree,
1: and I wrote that what was done to Lena is unforgivable, and I know that people say, oh, McPherson is a complicated villain, but ultimately it's one of those things, cool motive, still villain. Yeah. And I wrote that I think it's very powerful that... A storyline that could have been so much about a traditional abuse of power, a traditional disregard of the importance of a black woman's agency, actually turned into a story about two black women helping each other reclaim, on the one hand, one's agency and body and mind, and on the other hand, their home, which is the warehouse. It's very beautiful, and I can't actually point to a single time I've ever seen that on television.
0: Yeah, me either. And I think the the third element of what you're describing is that it, it's not quite going to happen in this episode, but we are going to ultimately get the thimble back in the hands of the good guys and back under Mrs. Frederick's care, which is important because she's a black woman and it's Harriet Tubman's artifact. So all of that is really thoughtful and well-written And this brings us to whatever happens next. We
1: are at the Escher
0: Vault. Oh!
1: And HG
0: is there with
1: McPherson, which we talked a little bit before about time compression and how they did a really good job of loosening that time compression in 108 Duped. This one, I'm going to say they're pushing it. Hmm. I don't know how everyone got back so fast, but it's fine. We'll just go with it. But HG is somehow already back with McPherson and asks why he's wearing beads around his neck and he explains it's, you know, if I don't wear them, my blood will leak out of my veins and I will die. And she's like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, and then she puts on her vest and we learned that 20 years ago, <laughs> A curious agent entered the vault and hasn't been heard from since, and it opens to
0: reveal the Escher gravity stairs, and it is so cool. Yes, they open up this amazing vault. Uh, I just wrote seven times that I like Helena's pants, and (laughs) then we go to Claudia and Artie. Who they kind of mentioned the time compression? They're like, how did we beat Pete and Micah here? Um, well, because uh, <laughs> I guess Pete and Micah got wrapped up in customs, something about destruction of a historical property, which I think that's pretty clever. <laughs> because you're you're so right to point out earlier that like American Secret Service agents do not have any jurisdiction in England,
1: especially without a diplomat there to protect. Yeah, they're not There's protecting just... anyone.
0: <laughs> Uh, well they're protecting history and doing a somewhat bad job so Claudia and Artie are bantering they have to take a circuitous route um, because like McPherson knew they would be coming and has booby trap things and as as they're bantering Artie says I can either run or lecture not both and Claudia is just like this is running? And it's definitely not.
1: They're, like, walking at a moderate pace.
0: Yes. So I think there's a, a good kind of running joke. And we've mentioned before that Lena had Artie on a diet. And, like, he has to be healthier. But then Artie is like, stop. Like, do you smell that? And then Claudia, like, Allison's acting is like, like her, her nose is like a sniffer dog. She turns to the side and goes, touch. Oh, And, like, it's adorable, and it tells us exactly, like, okay, something bad. An artifact is at play. Artie says that
1: they are chameleon mines, and they blend into the landscape so that you
0: can't see them, but the sign is fudge. Yes. And so they are able to, um, what are they, throw something and identify that this one route is blocked, and then they turn to go the other way, And Claudia does the 80s mom, like, throws her arm out. She's like, oh, now you got me doing it. Maybe it's, like, older than an 80s mom, but, like, definitely the thing from when your kid didn't have a seatbelt and you'd just throw your arm out to hold them in their seat. (laughs) And she sees Dante's mask is out of place. Which is so cool. Can we just talk about Dante's death mask? Oh, my gosh what if Dante actually did go to hell? Oh, no. Right?
1: And so I was like, I literally wrote Dante's death mask. So cool. What does it do? And then my next bullet point was, opens the gates
0: to hell. (laughs) I mean, that's like the only thing it can do. Um, Which is also, I think, actually really thematically relevant because we're going to talk about like the afterlife at the end of the episode. But... They uh, realize that McPherson has blocked them in and Claudia has a great plan that they can just like climb up, you know, a couple of stories and over a couple of rows and Artie's like, uh, no, that seems way too hard. Um, But luckily, just as they realize that they're trapped, Pete and Micah return and they are looking out from the office over the edge of the warehouse. And Artie is able to Farnsworth them and tell them like, okay, you've got to follow my instructions. Exactly. And the show cuts out, you know, you don't hear whatever he's saying, but we know Artie is doing his Artie speak, like he's talking real fast and he's using very specific, like, I know every single detail about the warehouse and you have to like turn here and avoid that. And Pete and Micah... They they were gonna listen, but then they see the zip line. <laughs> so they decide that they're gonna jump on that. It's hilarious and awesome. It makes sense that Pete has to hold it hold the, the rope and or whatever. Yeah, because he can't hold on to Micah. Like they'd both fall. No, like, the last thing you want is a 200-pound man just, like, pulling you down, like, and it's not a knock against Micah's strength, it's just physics. <laughs> Although, obviously, Micah wishes she was driving, just as we see Claudia and Artie, like, struggling, they look up over their heads, and they see Micah and Pete bickering as they cascade over the warehouse, and like Artie's like, oh, well, that that works, too. And this allows them to get somewhere where we don't know immediately what's happening. But HG emerges from the Escher vault and McPherson asks if she got what she came for. And she says yes. Um, He also says, where's the vest, which is very perceptive. Padoomsh, imperceptive vest. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well said. Uh, I I didn't do it on purpose, but I realized it after, and uh, she says, like, oh, it was completely spent, or, you know, whatever, and gets real flirtatious and seductive, um, which we did see Helena do to Pete earlier, so we're not totally baffled by it, but then she puts McPherson's hands behind him, and Pete emerges, takes him into handcuffs, and as McPherson or sorry as Artie then comes out we get the reveal that it was actually Micah with the thimble impersonating HG which
1: goes back to the exact queer questioning thing I was talking about in a way that actually literalizes it so we talked about how sometimes questioning your sexual identity means questioning whether you want to be with someone or you just want to be someone and that's like literally what micah does oh you're so bad. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so i just thought i'd throw that out there because it definitely brought it around in a very tangible
0: understandable way yeah i think that's so huge um and i think it really is important because if this is just my experience but when i have heard like bi or pan people talk about that questioning process that's often the phrase is like do I want to be them or do I want to be with them or the thing like you know that even like my parents said when I was a kid I was like I think I have a crush on a girl they were like you just want to be her and like no incorrect but that's like what a parent who's not like super aware of what questioning your sexuality might think they're like oh my kid just wants to be like that person they admire and here's Micah being that person they she admires. However,
1: Claudia and
0: Artie arrive.
1: McPherson says that there's still bargaining power. HG is still in the vault and he'll tell them everything they want to know. Um, so he has no regrets about turning on HG. And that's when HG arrives and says, well, I'm disappointed, but not surprised. Cuts off
0: the necklace. And then I wrote in all caps, ZOOMS AWAY. <laughs> Basically, the idea is that she emerges and knows, just like she predicted, that this man has also turned on her. And that's, like, her motivation for, like, she knows about the crystals and then she just cuts them off and he represents everything
1: that was wrong with her world at the time she was in it and we know this the kind of takes advantage of women and otherness and is constantly scheming to make their own way in the world and plus he's like a british white dude so he literally personifies everything that she distrusts
0: i was gonna say the same thing literally having them both be british people is like huge in the tension between her history and his like current moment um so as mcpherson kind of crumbles and is dying he tells Artie, and Artie is like cradling his friend because you can't save mcpherson at this point point. and despite all the complexity this was his partner for years and years and someone he cares about mcpherson says i knew you would use it and Artie realizes he's talking about the phoenix and so mcpherson says I, I, like, I knew you'd use it. I wanted you to see what I saw, which was the darkness, the nothingness. And this is when it's so sad. Artie says, what? No. Like, all I saw was light. He felt peace and nothing but hope. And this is so sad. And I think Buffy does this really well. Uh, other speculative shows do this well, where it's not a particular religious concept. But the idea is that... They both really did die for a while, and that McPherson, when he died, went to some bad place or went or saw nothingness, yeah, or just,
1: yeah, went nowhere. And it's like there's nothing wrong with being an atheist, yeah, and just having
0: nothing, yeah.
1: But I think that for people who have a religious faith that implies some kind of afterlife and they rely on it and they build their whole worldview on it, having that ripped away in a very firm way is detrimental to their mental health. Not everybody needs the promise of an afterlife in order to lead a fulfilling life and understand the difference between right and wrong and feel that there is meaning to have while we live, but other people really do need it. They need to have some sort of grounding force that they can look to when they don't feel that what they're doing right now has value. And there's no right or wrong way. But it can be really hard if that's ripped away from you without your consent.
0: Yeah. And then this is the thing about what Artie says is that it's sort of like an agnostic view, which is like, it's not that there was a heaven or like a a knowledge of corporeal being after death but it was like well there was some positive thing there that i can't understand or really explain and he explains that to mcpherson and this just leads mcpherson to say like i'm sorry arthur he says all this time i thought i knew the truth oh and like it it does bring up so many questions of like why was their experience different did Artie have some sort of heaven? Is it just because, like, it might not be because, like, McPherson is a bad person. It might just be because he, he was sort of realizing his own beliefs. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know why Artie saw light and why McPherson saw darkness. It doesn't have to be because McPherson is a villain and Artie is a good guy, though. I think it's really complicated. And
1: that lines up with, like, real stories of what people who've had medical death have felt like we don't know exactly what Pete felt when he had experienced medical death, but some people like in an ambulance and their heart stops. And some people are like, I saw a light. And some people were like, I didn't see anything.
0: And we also know that the, the circumstances are pretty different. Like maybe McPherson was dead longer and maybe, you know, or maybe Artie was dead longer. Like maybe the situations of their death affected this, like, We don't need the answer, but the idea is that the show prompts these questions, and they're, like, really thought-provoking when we stop and are like, oh, wow, this is the mythology of the world, and it's the mythology for these characters who, like, daily risk their lives. I think that's the biggest thing, is that people whose life is literally in danger every day rely on their understanding of life and death to survive and I think with Pete, Pete is just about like the greatest good in the moment and saving people, and the afterlife doesn't motivate him. But maybe for Artie and maybe for McPherson it did. So yeah.
1: And then from there we go to the B and B as the gang regroups. My computer slash Amazon Prime account did something weird here, so I don't know if this is a new act, but it might be. Okay. For the record. Um. So at the B&B, Micah wonders if they have to track down HG or if they can just let her go. And Artie says, well, we let her out. We got to bring her back. Mm -hmm. And she's vaguely disappointed, but understands. Claudia and Lena come in arguing. And it's a pretty intense argument. And Lena says she has more right to be shell-shocked, which I appreciated them using an antiquated term instead of like a modern medical term that might have gotten misused. And Claudia argues and says she's the victim and Lena storms off and they're having a major clash. And it's really easy
0: to see where both is coming from, you know? Yeah. And I also said that it's easy to see where Claudia's immaturity is playing in here. Um, So someone had asked us on Twitter if we talked about the like retconning of Claudia's age, which we did. Like we thought she was 22. She's actually 19. And either way, I mean, a young adult. But especially a 19 year old, like all she is understanding is her own, like she almost lost everything. And we had that flashback of her telling Mrs. Frederick, like, I would never betray you guys. Like, this is my family now. And and
1: I think it's really nuanced for both of them, too. Um, And you might say that it's immaturity. But the way I look at it is this is a person who spent her formative years being told that she was insane for believing something which she had every reason to believe was true. Um, so essentially misdiagnosed and mislabeled and told she's not in control of her own mind, which is terrifying that that made her such a danger to herself and others that she had to be at an institution. And then she f- had lost all of her family at that point. So imagine going to a place where you then find this family and realize you're not crazy, quote unquote, and that you are right to have believed the things you've believed and you have all this solace and all these answers and then that gets ripped away from you and you believe that something might be wronger wronger might be more wrong with you than you ever thought that's Mm -hmm. horrific and terrifying and i don't think at any age there's an easy way to process that and i think that both lena and claudia are both so wrapped up in their own traumas that they can't they can't see each other right now
0: and that's a good point because we know Lena is very emotionally like mature and um, like literally empathetic. And so just the extent of that trauma affecting her is, is not because she's immature. It's because of how severe that it was. Yeah. Um. So Claudia uh, is trying to change the topic and like, Artie, give me something. And Artie is like, go easy on Lena, like, obviously this is a real serious thing that has happened to us all, Um, but he does say, maybe this will help, and he pulls out the coolest all-black Farnsworth with, like, cool bronze on it, and um, he says, be careful, it belonged to Philo. And that's right, it's Farnsworth's Farnsworth. Yes! So as the scene wraps up in the B&B, Claudia is really excited about her Farnsworth. It does not mean she's an agent now. It means that Artie can contact her any time of day or night, which is obviously less cool. (laughs) But she does grab him in another hug and say, thank you for coming after me, which obviously is really important to her. And Artie's like, wow, why are we all hugging? You know, he's being a grumpy, grumpy, grumpy pants I wrote
1: they share terse and embarrassed affection.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but like that's kinda like that's kind of where you are you're at when you're nineteen and you love your dad, but he embarrasses you. Um so Pete has identified that this is Farnsworth's Farnsworth and he thinks it's really cool. And he's like, Oh, I wanna see it. Like Claudia knows he wants to see it, and she's like, You'll have to chase me. And they run off with the the family reestablished with Artie being the dad and Pete being the big brother. And it's a great callback too to 108
1: duped when Claudia is chasing him trying to play a game on his phone.
0: Yeah. So things are improved from the end of season one where everyone was betrayed and Artie might be dead. We've got kind of like a reestablishment of the dynamic that we love so that we can go into a new season um she is still out on the world and meanwhile mrs frederick and artie are gonna go find out what she took so interestingly there is a silly uncharacteristic joke from mrs frederick outside of the asher <laughs> vault she is clicking this insane password to get them in artie's like how do you remember that and she just says, deadpan, I do a lot of crossword puzzles, <laughs> which again, we'll get more info about Mrs. Frederick throughout the series. But it's really funny that like, there is a real reason why she knows everything about the warehouse, but that's all she says. She points out that they, um, being McPherson and HG needed a, uh, perceptor in vest. Mrs. Frederick, however, has the key. So she also has access to the steampunkiest goggles, um, which they, you know, have to put on for no particular reason, but for science fiction reasons, you need those to walk safely through the, the special staircases. And we get, like, an extended view of this. I remember watching this the first time, and definitely in 2010, this was, like, a really cool... Like, the graphics were were pretty awesome they're still really awesome the concept is even awesomer like the concept is timeless and how cool the escher vault is i've never seen anything like it you you see them you know i thought of the harry potter staircases but it's still not as as like those are not as cool as this those are not as extreme as what's happening in this because the rules of gravity don't apply yeah and that's like the whole point when we talked about that um Work. I don't know. I think it's like a drawing by Escher. I, I don't Lithograph.
2: recall.
0: Lithograph. Yeah, we, we had to look up the medium so the art people wouldn't get mad at us. <laughs> but it's like those concepts were what was inspiring him. And so there is something science and engineering-y about this really cool like maze that they go through. And we just kind of linger on that effect for a while. And finally, we get the reveal. H.G. Wells took her locket her ring, and her compact, which, like, none of those things sound dangerous. Obviously, the warehouse has taught us to, like, never underestimate things, but it's curious that it's not, like, the imperceptor vest or, you know, caverite boots. It's like, okay, she took some, like, objects that are not clearly identifiable as supernatural.
1: And these came... Basically a little bit before Mrs. Frederick's time at the warehouse, even knowing everything we know about her, because this is from the previous warehouse, Warehouse 12. And we know that there's no information in the records that HG was even in there.
0: Yeah. So who knows? Cut to HG Wells sitting at a coffee shop. She is in possession of all the things that we mentioned, Um, looking at her locket at first and then writing on a piece of paper we do not see what and a young man at the coffee shop asks what she's working on and she says something I've been working on a very long time and we're out oh we are out I just wrote that we end on a very sexy profile of Jamie Murray's face with like her ring that she had retrieved out on her finger she's kind of fiddling with it There are no unsexy angles of Jamie Murray. Right, though? Like, I'm sorry. (laughs) I think I'm a pretty attractive person, but my profile does not look as good as her profile is just, like, you know, goddess-like, you know? She's incredible. And it's, I think, the best way to premiere a season where all of the mystery is open. Like, we still don't know why she was bronzed, we don't know what these artifacts do. We we know she's at a coffee shop, but we don't know where she is. And this is going to be, you know, McPherson has died, but we've got a new big bad, like, right away. Yeah. So, boy, oh, boy, is this an amazing episode of television. And it literally has everything that I could ever ask for in a television show.
1: <laughs> I am so excited. Look, I loved season one, and I loved meeting all these characters, but I feel like this episode specifically is where the show
0: becomes the show. Oh, yeah. And that's so common for a lot of shows. They they start off, you've got to build the world, you've got to figure out who your characters are, and boom, season two. I mean, I would say seasons two and three are my favorites just yeah. in terms of all the characters and the long-term plots. Obviously, I love the whole thing, just like you said, Season one is not at all bad. It's just that season two is amazingly good and it blows your mind. Yeah, right out the gate. Yeah. Oh, I love it. And I'm so thrilled that we get to talk about this in the next like 24 weeks of our lives.
1: Yes. And there are some things that will be cut from this episode, but I would like to dedicate this episode to my nephew Kai, who was born
0: while we've recorded this episode literally (laughs) born during the recording so happy birthday kai um you are a sweet beautiful smush and this episode (laughs) is for you yes
1: and that is all and we'll see you
0: next time agents goodbye